Welcome to the NASPP's Equity Expert Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Barbara Buckshaw, and I'm the Executive Director of the NASPP. For this episode, we are talking about trends in performance-based equity awards. The trends we're going to share are findings from the 2021 Equity Incentives Design Survey, which is co-sponsored by the NASPP and Deloitte. Before we get to our trends, though, I want to give you a little background on the survey. This survey is part of a trio of surveys that the NASPP and Deloitte collaborate on. The surveys take an in-depth look at the design and administration of all forms of worldwide stock compensation. The 2021 edition focuses on the design of time-based full-value awards and stock options, as well as performance awards, which is what we're talking about today. We conducted the survey in early 2021 and received close to 400 responses. All of the respondents are public companies representing a wide range of industries and company sizes from the newly public all the way up to the very mature. About a third of the respondents are in the technology sector and nearly all are multinational companies headquartered in the United States. For this episode of the podcast, I have a returning guest, Ian Dawson from Deloitte Tax. In my last conversation with Ian, we talked about the types of equity awards companies grant and who they grant them to. And we had so much fun, we decided to record a follow-up on performance awards. Ian advises compensation committees and management on executive compensation issues. That's everything from salary benchmarking and incentive plan design to long-term incentives and equity plans. He's been advising public and private companies in the United States for 13 years, but he started his career in the UK advising London exchange-traded companies in the FTSE 100 and FTSE 250. His multicultural experience advising public companies makes him perfect to provide insight on the data we're going to be talking about today. Thanks for joining me, Ian. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for the introduction, Barbara, and thank you for having me back. Well, let's get right into it with my questions. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is an interesting trend that we see in the survey, which is that companies in the technology sector lag a little bit behind other sectors when it comes to using performance awards. And I'm really curious as to why that is. Do you think that tech companies experience less pressure from investors to tie equity awards to performance? And I'm also curious, is this just a US thing or do you see a similar pattern in other parts of the world? Yeah, I have to say, Bob, this wasn't a huge surprise to me when I saw this. You know, a lot of the big tech companies in the US, you know, the large household name public companies have founder CEOs. And they very often have clear visions on the culture that they want to build and how equity can support that culture. And oftentimes, honestly, performance-based awards just don't fit in with that vision. Being founder CEOs, often they don't have to be as concerned with shareholder investor sentiment, partly because performance has been very strong across the industry in general, but as importantly, frankly, because they may have significant shareholdings of their own. And as such, we, we generally see fewer of what I'll call kind of cookie-cutter performance-based plans that you expect to see in other industries across the Fortune 500. So the data didn't surprise me too much. And I think, you know, there's a few hypotheses as to why that bears out the way it does. And I think it's, you know, strong performance across the industry in general. But I think as importantly, it's really the, the founder CEOs that have their vision of what they want and the culture they want to build and, you know, control some of the voting and, and are less, less worried about shareholder sentiment, shall we say. I think to to part two of your question, the US really does dominate this industry globally. So it's very, very hard for other companies outside of the US to compete for talent if they're offering up, say, performance-based equity versus a competing offer that has time-based equity. You know, I know know which one I'm going to go to. 
it's a really big challenge for companies outside the US who may not have the same kind of founder CEO structure, and they may come under more pressure from shareholders than the US competitors. I think in an ideal world, most companies outside the US would like to follow the US model, but there are obviously certain local factors that can prevent them from doing that, being you know shareholder pressure and, and the nature of their leadership in the organization. So I don't think it's quite as ubiquitous outside of the US, but I think they would like to follow that model to compete. But it can be a little bit more difficult depending on you know local factors. Next, I want to ask you about TSR awards. The survey has tracked remarkable growth in the use of total shareholder return or TSR as a performance metric. In 2007, only 30% of companies that grant performance awards tied vesting to TSR. And this percentage rose to over 60% in the 2021 survey. What do you think is driving that growth? Two things spring immediately to mind here, Bob. As you'll recall, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, in part in response to the financial crisis. This act included Say on Pay, which is a mandatory non-binding shareholder resolution offered by management, which asks investors to approve the compensation package for companies named executive officers. So for the very first time, you had shareholders voting on compensation for executives. So I don't think it's a coincidence that you see this sharp uptick in the use of relative TSR around that time. Shareholders in general, love TSR. You know, everyone understands it. It's a very simple measure of how a company performs compared to its competitors or an index. So I think the first part is shareholder and proxy advisor pressure to adopt it as a measure is one of the reasons we see that uptick from just under 30% in 2010 to almost just over 60% now. Part two could be a little bit more related to market volatility, frankly, and the challenges that some compensation committees have in setting goals. Setting long-term financial goals, whether it's revenue, profit, EPS, return metrics, has, has never really been more difficult for committees. And the implications of getting them wrong can be really significant. So from windfall payouts at one end of the spectrum to zero payouts and retention issues at the other end of the spectrum. And I can tell you from the, you know, the compensation committee meetings that I sit in, it's always the longest meeting and the most challenging meeting for management and the committee to establish those goals on an annual basis. And honestly, whether you love or loathe TSR, and I've, I've met plenty of people on both sides of this debate, very few will argue that it is very easy to set goals compared to other financial metrics. You pick your peer group or your index, you establish the payout and performance curve, and away you go. It's really a, a set and forget metric. So I think that might have a little bit to do with it as well, the market volatility and the challenge in setting goals. TSR is a relatively easy metric to set compared to some other financial metrics. So I think it's really that combination of factors of say on page introduction around, around 2010 and, and market volatility and the, the ease that you have when setting TSR goals. Well, I have to admit that makes a lot of sense to me. Both of those points that you make, I think you're right. There's no clearer way to tie executive pay to or to align executive pay with investors than to basically tie it to investor returns. And I also can can really appreciate the simplicity in setting goals for TSR awards. I'm wondering though, since you said that shareholders really love TSR awards, how do executives feel about it? Do they also <laughs> love TSR awards or would they prefer goals that they maybe feel like they have more control over? You know, it's a, it's a good question. In my experience, executives tend to be a little bit more cynical about TSR. They very often feel that they don't have as much control over the outcome as they might over you know, other metrics, whether it's a return metric, EPS, revenue, or what have you. So I've definitely been part of conversations in a boardroom where you, you know, you've got a board 
or committee saying, let's adopt TSR, it's nice and easy. Well, on the other side, you have management executives saying, no, my team doesn't have line of sight over what we have to do to move the needle on TSR. So I hear both sides of that, and I understand both sides of that. There's definitely a conflict there between you know the shareholder and investor preference for TSR and oftentimes management's kind of hesitance, reluctance, whatever you want to call it, around their ability to really influence the outcome. So it's a really uh, interesting conversation. Well, I think that sort of leads to my third question here, which is for companies who don't use TSR or who want to use a metric in addition to TSR, what are some of the other commonly used metrics that you see companies use? Again, do you see any differences between what U.S. companies do and what companies do outside of the U.S.? You know, I think you'll see TSR, particularly say in in the U.K., TSR and EPS are very commonly used metrics because they're very easily understood. And in fact, you know, EPS is a very common metric here in the U.S. as well. You've got almost one in four companies use EPS. And I think one of the reasons for that is it, it can strike a bit of a balance between management understanding what they need to do to improve EPS and also the investor and shareholders understanding it. Because of course, management has to tell the street every quarter what they expect to do with EPS. So it's a very well understood metric. So, you know, EPS and revenue are very, very common metrics. About one in four companies use them. And they're very often balanced out with a you know profitability metric such as EBITDA, a little less common around one in 10 companies. But those metrics that are that are well understood by participants and they really know what they have to do to move the needle. You know, when TSR isn't part of the equation, those are the metrics that the companies go to. Another topic I wanted to discuss with you is ESG-related metrics. This is one area where we really just didn't see a lot of growth in the survey. Only about 4% of respondents to the survey used any ESG metrics that we asked about. Yet, I continue to hear that companies are interested in tying compensation to ESG. Uh, And so I'm wondering, what do you think the future is for long-term incentives and equity awards and ESG? Do you think there'll be more take-up of ESG targets, or do you think companies will focus more on incorporating ESG primarily into annual compensation? It's a really hot topic at the moment. And, you know, the the reality is, Bob, that there's still so much unknown about the extent to which including these metrics in any incentive plan, so whether that's a short-term plan or a long-term plan, is actually going to drive the desired behaviours that investors are looking for. And, you know, there are so many worthy metrics to choose from that it's almost impossible to include them all. And, of course, there are risks associated with those decisions when you're implementing them, whether it's in a short-term plan or a long-term plan. For a financial target such as, say, EPS that we just talked about, there's pretty good consensus on how to measure it. But that really isn't the case for nearly any ESG metric, frankly. You know, even two competing companies that are striving for the same goal, you can almost guarantee that they'll be measuring success very differently. Look, I say all this because I think this will evolve over time. We're really still in the infancy of even talking about ESG in the context of pay. And it makes sense to start with the annual incentives, frankly. And I I do think we will see more companies introduce metrics as part of equity-based plans going forward. But I honestly, I think it's going to be a very slow adoption. And I think it will be far from universal because of some of those challenges that I mentioned, like what metrics you choose, how do you measure them, how do you measure success? So I, I think we'll continue to see growth in the annual plans, but I think it may be slightly slightly slower getting into the, the long-term incentive plans if I were to get my crystal ball out. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is the number of metrics that companies make awards 
subject to. In our survey, nearly three-fourths of respondents make vesting in performance awards contingent on two or more metrics, with around half using two metrics. Why do companies use multiple metrics, and what are some of the common combinations that you see? Multiple metrics, whatever I'm talking to my clients about designing a plan, a long-term incentive plan, I really prefer them not to have all their eggs in one basket for a plan. And by that, I mean, if you have just one metric and you don't perform against that metric, then the whole award is gone. Okay, So one of the reasons companies use multiple metrics is to balance some of that risk. So, you know, maybe you, you underperform against one metric, but you do okay against another metric. And that still gives executives the opportunity to, to you know, pay out. There's also a balance question. So combinations of metrics uh, is important. You would be very hard pressed to find too many companies, for example, particularly mature companies that say they're just going to incent revenue growth. More often than not, they, companies will balance revenue with profitability because of course companies want to grow, but they want to grow profitably. Now, in terms of the number of metrics, I think one of the reasons you see so few companies using, say, four above, I think it's only five or 6% use four or more metrics, is that you still want to make sure you have the balance of getting people's attention. And as a general rule of thumb, when designing a plan, you know, I've always been of the school of thought that if you weight a metric less than, say, 20%, so one-fifth of the overall weighting, is that really going to move the needle? Is that really going to get an executive's attention? So you really want to balance that, not having all your eggs in one basket, so that, you know, at least two metrics, but not having too many metrics such that it becomes a little bit convoluted and executives don't really know where to focus their time and what the priorities are. So I think, you know, that, that sweet spot of, of two to three metrics isn't a big surprise to me. You know, you've got over two thirds of companies in, in that sweet spot of two to three metrics. And that is, I think, a good, solid plan design. I could see how, just going back to what we were talking about earlier with the types of executives shareholders prefer versus the type of metrics that executives prefer, that using multiple metrics is maybe a way to make everybody happy. You can use TSR, which makes your shareholders happy, but then also have some vesting tied to an internal metric that maybe executives feel better about. I think that's right. And I think many companies are moving down that path and trying to balance that push and pull from shareholders and executives. And I think I would certainly not recommend, although many companies do it, having 100% on TSR, for example. I think having that balance, as you described, between investor-friendly metrics such as TSR and other metrics that management feel like they might have a little bit more line of sight and control over is, is a really good approach. Just to return to our conversation about ESG, so as companies sort of gradually move to including ESG in long-term incentives to the extent that they do make that move, do you see ESG replacing some of the metrics that they use now, or do you think that it just gets added on? I would be surprised if it replaced metrics, because the metrics that are in place at the moment remain incredibly important to the long-term financial success of the company. So TSR, new EPS, return measures, they remain incredibly important. What I think we're more likely to see is either a carved out portion, so you know maybe 10%, 20% with carved out ESG, or some sort of modifier. That has been a very common approach. But I would be very surprised if existing metrics were removed and replaced with ESG, because ultimately the financial metrics are what measure the long-term success of a company. And the ESG metrics are a really important part of that, but I don't think they will replace them. Got it. All right, well, for my last question, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how performance awards are handled in the event of a change in control. 
In our survey, two-thirds of respondents require a double trigger for awards to invest in the event of a change in control, which means that vesting is accelerated only if the award holder is terminated or leaves for good reason within a specified period after the change in control. So absent a termination event, the awards continue vesting. And this is a particular challenge for performance awards because the metrics that vesting is tied to often no longer make sense for the combined entities. So how do companies typically address this concern? It's a common challenge when you get this sort of change control mid-cycle because the timing of that change control can be all important. You know, if you've just started a three-year performance period, for example, you have a change of control in Q1, do you convert that at target? Do you convert it at actual? And so it doesn't surprise me to see that most companies defer to target. That's the most straightforward and it can sometimes be seen as the most equitable. But, you know, you've got to picture a scenario, for example, where you have a change control, let's say two years into a three-year performance period and management's done really well and they're tracking for a really good payout. You have a change control, but all of a sudden we're going to say, oh, we're not at the end of the performance period, so we're just going to do the conversion at target. In that scenario, management loses out. But of course, the opposite is true. They could be underperforming and it could come up to target. What I like is the greater of target or actual performance. I think that's fairest on management. Although I would say it's not the most common part. You know, target, as I said, is almost half of companies use target and about one in four companies use actual I said, I like the greater target or actual because I think it's fairest on management and it avoids some of those difficulties around how performance is tracking and the timing of the change control. So your target remains the most common. I expect it'll, it'll probably remain that way. But I would encourage companies to think about what's fairest on management and do some scenario planning around what that might look like in the event of a change control and, and some of the unintended consequences of having a, a provision of that nature. All right. Well, great. That's helpful advice. And that's a wrap on this episode of the podcast. This podcast is the third in a series of four podcasts that we are broadcasting to highlight results from the survey. The other podcasts in the series include my earlier conversation with Ian on equity award usage and a conversation with Mark Miller of Deloitte Tax on trends in global stock plans. The fourth podcast will cover our findings on retirement provisions, which is always a hot topic with our members. We also have two webcasts that highlight results from the survey. Both are available now on the NASPP website. We'll include links to all the podcasts in the series and the two webcasts in the show notes. Ian, thanks so much for joining me again. I really enjoyed both our conversations. I think if you get tired of advising companies on compensation, you could have a second career in podcasting. Well, thank you, Bob. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me back. And for my listeners, if you enjoyed today's program, be sure to subscribe to the Equity Expert Podcast so you are notified when we post new episodes. You can subscribe on the NESPP website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.